I speak to you in the name of the living God, blessed Trinity and lover of your souls. Amen. All right, everybody, settle into your seats because today we are going to tackle a New Testament epistle. And it is helpful to remember that most of these epistles are letters written to churches in response to a question that we really don't know <laughs> about what it means to follow Jesus. See, we only have one side of the letter, the response to the question. So we have to make these educated guesses as to which questions the author of the epistle might be trying to answer. Today, we read from the epistle of 1 Peter, and the question I hear him trying to answer is, so where did Jesus go when he died? Where did Jesus go when he died? The author seems to answer the question directly. Where did Jesus go when he died? Jesus went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Oh, okay. <laughs> to our 21st century minds, we might be wondering, who are these spirits? Where is this prison? And then as we read further into the text, why is Noah's ark here? And what does water have to do with Jesus' death? The terms start to sound like the stuff of mysticism and mythology, and they just might be. At least, the mysticism and the mythology of the century in which these letters were written. If I were to ask you today to draw me a picture of the universe, you might begin by drawing a bunch of stars or clouds of dust, or even the sun with planets circling it, eight or nine planets, depending on when you graduated from kindergarten. <laughs> but a millennium ago, or two, if I asked you to draw me a picture of the universe, you'd begin by drawing something that looks like a pebble in a puddle. A pebble in a puddle. Sixth century BCE Greek philosopher Thales of Miletus is said to be the first to have conceptualized Earth's geography within the cosmos. He claimed that everything in the cosmos comes from water, and that the Earth floats on water like a piece of wood in a pond. The Earth was understood to be flat but circular and enclosed in this cosmic ocean. This is what the New Testament map of the universe would have looked like in the mind of our author. And like intergalactic sailors, or even fishermen, the ancients would have imagined that they could navigate the cosmos via celestial seas. There are, in fact, epic tales of a sun god who sailed the edges of the sky in a golden chalice and of a supernatural ferryman who carried the souls of the deceased across the rivers of the underworld that separate the realms of the living and the dead. That pebble floating in a pond is likely what the author of 1 Peter imagined as he described to the early church where Jesus went when he died. Today, we read Jesus went to proclaim to the spirits in prison and in just a few more verses after this, these ones, 1 Peter will tell us that Jesus also went and preached to those who are now dead. 
Biblical scholars believe these are two different geographical locations on that map of the cosmos, two different places in the spiritual realm. So let's try and find them on our cosmological map of the first century. I'll begin with some context. There are two mythologies that I see at work here in this passage. One is Greek and one is Jewish. We'll start with the Greek one because that one might be a little more familiar. And First Peter was likely written in the Greco-Roman Empire in the first century where the water that encircled the earth was known as Oceanus. Imagine an archery target. In the center is the earth and then the ring around it is an ocean. And then a ring around that is the sun, the moon, and the stars. This is how the sun and the moon rise and set on the edges of the sea. They go in and out. Then beyond that ring is the Olympus ring where the gods dwell. And beyond that ring is a ring of celestial fire which encloses humanity within time and separates us from the eternal that lies beyond. Now let's zoom back into the pebble. Where are the dead on this map? Well, the pebble is composed of a great sky dome above where the gods and angels can interact with the living and a great pit of the underworld below its surface where the demons and the dead dwell. First Peter tells us that when Jesus's body died, his spirit was still alive making it possible for him to traverse these cosmic waters above the sky dome and below the underworld. And guess what? Jesus is not the first person to traverse Oceanus in this way. One familiar figure who went on a similar journey is the Greek demigod Hercules. Have you heard of him? Hercules' stories were around for hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And I think it's weirdly cool to imagine that Jesus may have heard the stories of Hercules as a kid. Hercules was half God, half human, and very strong. So he was constantly being sent on missions by gods and kings. He once sailed in the sun god's boat above the dome of the sky. And in another instance, he rode a demon's ferry across the river of the underworld to kidnap the guard dog of Hades and give humankind access to the realm of the dead. Like Hercules, Jesus traversed the cosmic waters to preach death's defeat to those who had died and were now in the underworld, as well as to proclaim to the spirits in prison, which was below the waters that separated the underworld from the lower edges of the Olympus, where the lesser gods dwelled. See, the word prison here is key to the Jewish mythology in this passage. The word prison literally means guard or watcher. And this is the term that cues us that the author may be referring to the ancient mythology of the watchers. This is a mythology from Jewish culture possibly influenced by Babylon or Aramaic. The term watchers shows up briefly in the books of Genesis and in the book of Daniel. But it's expounded upon at great length in these non-biblical books like Enoch, 
which was written in the second or first century BCE, just before the writing of today's epistle. And as the story goes, the watchers are sons of heaven. They are angels who mated with human women. In Hebrew, the children of the watchers are called the Nephilim. They're these half-angel, half-human demigods that are described as giants or fallen ones in the books of Numbers and Ezekiel. And in some ways, they are like the Jewish version of Hercules. These watchers may be the adversary who in the book of Luke, Jesus tells us he saw fall from heaven like lightning. And those who in the book of Jude tells us were sent to a kind of prison bound with everlasting chains under darkness until the final judgment. According to the myths from Enoch, the watchers were bound by God because they brought evil and violence into the world. They not only transgressed heavenly boundaries when they had children with human women, but they are the ones who taught humanity how to wage war. Irenaeus and Tertullian, two of the renowned early church fathers who helped shape Christian conceptions of sin, they both used the story of Adam's transgression in the Garden of Eden and the story of systemic sin brought into the world by the fallen watcher spirits as they were shaping their theology. See, this story of the watchers is relevant to our epistle today because the word watcher shows up there and it's connected to the flood, which it is connected to the flood in the book of Genesis and in 1 Peter. See, so great was the sin that the watchers brought into the world, the sins of violence and war, that God brought about the flood. God made the pebble that was floating in the center of the cosmic ocean sink into the deep, saving only eight people from the face of the earth in Noah's Ark. These ancient stories and ways of understanding the geography of the universe at that time are what help us understand what the epistle is talking about. The Jewish mythology of the Watchers and the Greek mythology of Hercules and the cosmological geographical science of the first century shaped the mind of our author who may have just been trying to answer one simple question, where did Jesus go when he died? But once we enter into his worldview, suddenly the words of 1 Peter make a little more sense. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the watcher spirits, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark. Oh, okay. See, first Peter answers the question, where did Jesus go when he dies? But then he starts to move his reader somewhere else. Because I don't think the point of this passage is just cosmic geography. The author seems less concerned about where Jesus went when he died. He says all that in one sentence. And more concerned about who Jesus did all this cosmic traveling for. The author's primary concern is you, the person who's reading this letter. 
All this cosmology of water, he says, this prefigures your baptism. And baptism is what saves you. All that old mythology of sin is pointing to your salvation from sin. Hercules may have sailed the cosmic waters to give humankind access to the underworld, but when Jesus sailed to Hades, he hung a closed for business sign on the door. Now, instead of being dead for eternity, you get to be with God. Jesus went to the prison of darkness to proclaim to fallen angels that the sins that they brought into the world no longer have power over you. Jesus went and preached to the dead because no one, living or dead, is outside his judgment and grace. And that means that whether you're alive or dead, you can always find your way to God. Hercules may have navigated the river between heaven and earth in the golden cup of the sun god, but Jesus is the son of God who ascended straight into the heavenly realm. See, whether the watchers really existed matters less to this author than the reality that Jesus has authority over them and over every being, natural or supernatural, because this is how he ends today's passage. Jesus sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all made subject to him. First Peter wants to make it clear with this epistle Jesus is greater than any angel, watcher, demigod, or even Hercules himself. Jesus accomplished far greater feats than they did, and not for his own glory, but to bring you closer to God. This is why we get this text today on the first Sunday in Lent, because it narrates Jesus' journey into death. The author takes us away, takes away for his, sorry, the author's takeaway for his reading is basically this. If you want to tap into all this really cool cosmological stuff that Jesus is doing, John the Baptist has already shown you the way. Thales of Miletus was onto something when he told us that everything comes from water. God may have once dipped the pebble of the earth into the puddle of the cosmos in the time of Noah, but God promised never to do that again. At that time, God rid the world of sin to remake it through water into something righteous. But now, God asks you to dip yourself into the waters of baptism to be born again. Back then, God only saved a few from the water, but now God is saving everyone through the water. Jesus traversed cosmic waters when he died, and his journey may be as remarkable as our cultural myths, but it was real. And the tales of his travels are less important than knowing who he traveled it all for. He did it for you. Jesus died for you, his spirit sailed the cosmos for you, for you he conquered death and removed the weight of sin from your conscience. He did it so that you can wash yourself in the cosmic waters that now take away the sins of the world and that together 
He and all God's children can sail off this cosmological map into the uncharted geography of an eternity with God.